Remember in, in Romans 9, he began that he would wish that he himself would be accursed or separated from Christ so that Israel, his Jewish brothers and sisters, would be in the Lord. If it would come to that, he was willing to do that. Wow, that is a huge sacrifice. Not just laying down his life, but that he would be separated from Christ. I can't imagine that. But he even says very soundly, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, and I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my Jewish kinsmen, according to the flesh. Can you imagine that kind of eternal sacrifice? Unbelievable. But I believe him when he says, I'm telling the truth. In chapter 10, then, he goes on to talk about what it is to be saved, what it actually means to be saved and to be sent. And he looks at himself as talking amongst us, saying, brethren and sisters, my heart's desire and my praise to God for them is for their salvation. Their meaning Israel's salvation. That's what he's talking about. And so in that, he brings to bear their condition. For I testify about them. In other words, I'm speaking the truth, same context of what he was saying in chapter 9, that he wished that he could be accursed for their salvation. But he says, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. You remember the message that Kent gave on breaking down the meaning of knowledge and true knowledge? The word that is used here is hypognosis, and uh, true or first-hand intimate or contact knowledge, personal knowledge. That's the word that Paul uses here. They don't have it. They don't have that true, intimate relationship. Yes, they have all the practices of the laws. And we, even as Christians, can fall into that trap. So that our Christianity is, well, we just go to church on Sunday because it's our habit. No, that is not what true knowledge is. True knowledge is we are intimate with and in our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another by the fact that we love Jesus. We come to him with knowledge of who he is and what he's done for us. It's not just something perfunctory. That It's not just something common, ordinary. It uh, doesn't really matter. It does matter. It does matter. And some of you who have come even this morning, maybe from... You're visiting here in Japan, and you found us to come together as the body of Christ. Because it's not just our habit, 
It's our relationship. It's what we've given ourselves to, to him. And he goes on to say in verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That phrase, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, has to do with being agnostic. We were talking about gnosis, which is the Greek word for to know. But we use this word in English like prognosis. Flossie was talking about the prognosis of Russ. What, what is possible? What, what does he have to do in order to be able to move along in his rehabilitation? And so the doctor says, well, the prognosis does not look very good. But the doctor doesn't know the God that we are serving, apparently, that we're praying to. Because the prognosis is getting better and better, according to what Flossie's expectations were, and ours as well. But they are ignorant, Paul says. They're against knowledge, the knowledge of God. Paul declares his love for them with the fact that he would lay down his life for his Jewish friends. You know, Paul is really the apostle to the Gentiles. Being Jewish himself, I think he felt a sense of obligation that Israel was to be the witness and testimony of God to the world, of the true God to the world. And so we have in Paul kind of a personification of what it means to be a missionary, what it means to be the church planted in a world of false religion and don't have a relationship with God, the true God, the Holy One, the God of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth, creator God, Father God, the one who sent his son, Jesus, to become a man like us, exactly like us, yet without sin. He came as the second Adam, the first one being flawed by the fact that he chose not to trust God. And so Paul, as a Jewish teacher, leader, saw that it was on him as a calling. On the Damascus Road, when he met Jesus Christ, he hears God say to him, I've got work for you to do. That is what the Lord is saying to us, too, in Paul's writings here, I believe. Paul is addressing the Jews in the context of the Roman church, which, as we've said before, the Roman church was very much like MCC, very much like this church here. People from different parts of the world. At that time, it was the Roman world. Our world is much broader than that. And we come together here in this basement place from different lands, different languages. We're here drawn together 
and we're following one master, one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a picture of what God had in mind for Israel. But they were ignorant. They were ignorant of his plan. They didn't have a relationship. Paul's love for Israel was not just his own emotional idea or sense, but it came from God's love. It was God's love in him that worked through him to be called to a people he didn't know. And that's the way it is for us as well. Who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is intimate. He's come and dwelt inside us. He gave us his Holy Spirit, which is the same as he himself living in us. Each one of us who have accepted Jesus Christ are in that state of being and person. And God is desiring for us to be his ministers, his missionaries, if you would, his agents, to be in the places that he has called us in our profession, in our studies, in our homes, in our families, in the company, the people that we meet in the restaurants or Starbucks or any place that you bump into people and there's a connection. It should be immediate or at least within the next 30 minutes that they would understand there's something about this person that's different. Why? Because there's a fragrance about us as Christians. It's the fragrance of Jesus Christ. And they can sense there's something different here. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not mysterious. It's by the fact that this is where our life is. This is where our life flow is. This is what exudes from us a love for Jesus Christ and a love for people that he puts in our way. My first point is for Christ, the anointed one, that's what uh, Christ means. It's Christos in Greek. It's Messiah in Hebrew. And it means the anointed one or the appointed one. Is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. And as we've studied when we went through Genesis and some of the Old Testament passages last year, that the practice of of the law was a thing that was dinned into the Jewish people by the fact that they had to bring sacrifices and they had to bring for their sin an animal that was without blemish and spot. And they had to sacrifice that for their sin. And it pointed to the fact that we are sinners, every one of us, because of Adam. We are sinners. And it points to the fact that we need a righteousness that is not of our own. But over the period of time, the Jewish people, in particular during the time when, when Jesus was on earth, the time that he was sent by God, 
the Jewish people were steeped in their tradition, their practice of the law, but there was not a, a righteousness to it. And so when Jesus came, those that knew the law best and supposedly knew God the best, the spiritual leaders were not leading people to Christ or to the Lamb or to righteousness. And that's what Jesus was sent. And he came then as the Lamb. And John pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They missed him. They didn't know him. They didn't realize it. But looking at verse 5 here, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. The requirement of a righteous life. None of us can perform that that righteousness, could we? And that's where we have come as Christians, realizing that Jesus is the only one, the only one who could live that righteous life. That's why we trust in him. That's why he, being our sacrificed lamb, puts us in a place of being in intimate knowledge and understanding of him, receiving him as our savior, that we become righteous because of his righteousness, not a righteousness of our own. Verse 6 then, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ, again, the anointed one, down. And then he goes on in 7, Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ, the anointed one, up from the dead. What? is that that Paul is interjecting into his thinking process here. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend up into heaven. And that is like we think by doing the law and performing even our Christian duties, we're reaching up into heaven and receiving righteousness to ourselves. No, we can't do that. We've discovered that. We've tried it. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. We try and we try. We read our Bible. We pray. We do all of these things. But if it's dead works, it's not righteousness. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives in order to make those words and that action true and real not a righteousness of our own. We fail over and over and over again. But we come to him over and over again saying, I am yours. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your righteousness that I can live in. And verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And that's to bring him up, raise him up, No, Jesus is alive because of God the Father's approval of him in raising from the dead. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
this is all fruitless, what we're doing today. Coming here has no meaning if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead. That is our crown. That is our, that is our joy. That he is risen. He's alive. He is within us. He has given us of his righteousness. And we don't have a righteousness of our own. Praise the Lord. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That's why, that's why we as believers are preaching and we are preachers. If you say that you are a Christian, you put a big target on your back and it basically is saying, I'm like Jesus. If you say you're a Christian. But if in actuality, you are really not living as Jesus Christ, then they really have something to knock you out of the running, to take you down. In fact, we as believers are being read being heard every day, everything that we do. That's why we need to know that his life is in me. And I'm living the Christian life not in my own strength, not by my own good efforts, but by my trust and belief in him as my Savior, the living Savior. He's the one that moves my heart to reach out to the person next to me on the plane seat. They got the aisle seat and I didn't. No, they're the ones that Jesus loves and wants them to know about him. And that's our opportunity. Ten hours to the United States, five hours to the Philippines, wherever it is, we have enough time to give testimony and to be preachers, not in the sense of, I'm going to tell you something. That's not what preaching is. Preaching is demonstrating, speaking the truth, sharing with those who, you can be moved in your heart by someone that you have never met before. And you sit down at a restaurant next to them, or you bump into them in a store or even the clerk that's serving you and express Jesus Christ to them. You're preaching, but not in the way that we think in terms of your mom used to talk to you or your dad. No, it's in a way that is winsome. It is leading them to Christ. It is modeling what Jesus would do in situation that you find yourself in. Now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty of theology. Verse 9, we're talking about that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a two-step 
explanation of what it means to be saved. There's two steps involved. First of all, you confess with your mouth. When we confess something, we're really giving testimony. It's like we talked about earlier in Romans where there was a kind of a courtroom scene and there was a prosecutor and there was the judge that was watching and listening and there was the defendant who was seeking to be found innocent or to be found truthful. And so when you say something with your mouth, that is what the clerk who is sitting down below the judge is, at least that's the way the picture that we have of justice in our American courts and our English courts. I don't know how it is in Japan, but there's a clerk down there. The witness says this, and it's all written down. Every word is written down so that it can be reviewed. There's a famous incident that happened in Japan after the war when the Americans had come and were trying to bring order to Japan. And there were some war trials of some of the officers that were in the Japanese army. And there was, I, I was going to look this up, but I, I think it was an admiral. I think it was Tojo. I'm not sure. But the judge had asked him, or the prosecutor had asked him, did you not kill these people and order these people killed in China or the Philippines? And his answer was, hi, yes. And immediately, reporters who were listening to this they misunderstood what he meant by high or yes. And they ran out, sent telegrams around the world that this admiral or this general had confessed to giving the command to kill and murder these people. Well, he misunderstood completely. The, the reporters did. When he said yes, he was answering, did you not? Isn't that a hard thing for us to understand? And he was saying, I did not. I agree with you. I did not make that order. So it is very critical how we confess with our mouth. That wasn't a true confession that that person had given. I think they corrected, but I'm not sure what happened there. The other step is believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. You will be saved. Two parts. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, and you'll be saved. Interestingly, in the next verse, Paul reverses the order to first confess, to believing in your heart. He reverses it, and it says, For with the heart a person believes 
resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. And I looked at that and wondered, why did Paul reverse the order? I think there's something here. When we confess with our mouth, we're putting into action our thoughts and our inner man. And it's a reflection of what is inside our hearts. When God hears that, when God is looking at us, he sees our heart first and hears our words second. So I think that that's what Paul is explaining. There's, it's a two-way understanding. It's like Kent had mentioned in, about knowledge. When you truly know someone, it's a two-way understanding. It's not just one way. And so God is listening, watching. He knows your heart. And he's looking for you to confess what you have become convinced of. And it results in righteousness and salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I like that, that Joel says in his prophecy, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. It's not a distinction between races or a distinction between wealth and poverty. It's not a distinction between educated and uneducated. It is in terms of our profession, our belief in our call in a time of trouble or in a time of conviction. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I like that. It is so open. It is so inviting of those who need to know that when they call, there's someone listening. Then Paul goes on then in verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And this is what we're talking about in terms of the Jewish people held all this so closely to themselves. And it was very hard for people to get in. There are examples in the scriptures of Gentiles getting in, being proselytized, being becoming Jewish. But very few. Very few. Paul's pack then as a missionary to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to those in the Roman Empire, was this gospel is for all people. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what drove him. That was his motivation. That was his heart and desire. And the question then here is, God has a problem. Is he going to get you and me? to that place where we understand because I have come to Christ I have an obligation 
I have an obligation to Jesus Christ to make his salvation known to those who are nearest me. That's why we prayed for the Sano family this morning. That Aki's father would, would come to know Jesus Christ. It's not an obligation to them. It's a love for their dad. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing. We're going to continue praying about that. And then thirdly, how will they preach unless they are sent? We read, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And do you feel like crying that out sometime? When maybe you've shared with a coworker or a friend at school and they really haven't heeded your testimony? They haven't responded positively? Verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I believe that we are an epistle, the Bible says. We are the word of Christ to the people who are reading us and looking at our walk as Christians. And when they hear, they then become without excuse. Because Jesus gave us gave his disciples, us as well. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Then in verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. And as Kent has already read, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know. Did they? Well, yes, they did. First there was Moses saying, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. So that God's people, the Jews, look at us as Christians and other nationalities. Why has it been so tough for Israel all these years, these centuries? Just as a side note here, quickly, if you have any doubts about God's promises, if you have any doubts that God really isn't at work in your world, if you have any doubts that that God is not really concerned about what is happening in our daily lives or in our world, take a look at Israel. Take a look at Israel. They are not a righteous nation. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But I believe that they are still God's chosen people. They are like an alarm clock. It's like a big timer. Israel is like a big timer. God has said it. And God the Father knows. And is ticking away. And it's coming closer and closer to bing! The cake's ready. Israel is like a timer. God has said it. He knows when the time is. It's done. 
but he has kept himself to his promise to Israel. Against all the odds of history, every nation that has ever risen in world history has had a problem with Israel. And here we are. Why? Why is it that that little piece of land there sitting at the end of the Mediterranean is so important in the world? People say it's oil. No, it isn't. Israel's just found a little bit of oil and a little bit of gas, natural gas. And yet they are right in the center of what the nations are talking about today. Why? Why? Because of the faithfulness of God's covenant and his word. And so if you doubt that your little world, God is really not concerned about it, he is. And I believe in the God covenant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Israel. And we'll see how it plays out in the next few years. I think we're getting very close where that timer is moving very close to zero. Time left. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask of me. Isaiah is very bold. I was found by those who did not seek me. Who are we here? Who are we that are gathered right here at this moment in time? There's very few of us who would fall in the category of being Jewish. But we believe in Jesus Christ who himself was Jewish and we're followers of him. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel, Jerusalem, why? Why have you persecuted the prophets? Why have they rejected? But he has made them jealous. And God is looking for those who have a heart to follow after him, his holiness, his person. I'm so thankful that we have Paul's record here. I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest or revealed to those who did not ask for me. That's God's mercy. That's his grace. That's what we rejoice in today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for reaching into our lives and making known to us who you are. Thank you for Jesus who became our sacrifice lamb.
who gave himself for our redemption, for the removal of our sins, placing us into your kingdom, into your congregation of people who follow after you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.